This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today, we've got a great show in store for you. We've got David Riley back on to talk all things mock scrapes. David is an absolute master when it comes to making mock scrapes. He has been sending me photos and we've been talking back and forth for weeks now. It's unbelievable seeing the success that he has on mock scrapes in the summertime, even before season opens up. And I know that as season opens up, he has the exact same amount of success, if not even more, with Bucks daylighting on these scrapes, not far from betting at all. So I think there's a ton to take away from this show, a bunch of light bulb moments. I know that I learned a ton personally, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the show, one last thing. If you're looking for any last-minute hunting gear before season, head over to LatitudeOutdoors.com, pick up what you need, and use the discount code INSESSION to save you 20% off your order. That's one word, INSESSION. You can also find that code in the description of this podcast. Thank you for listening to today's show. Let's get right into it. Today, I have an awesome guest in store for you. I've been picking this guy's brain pretty much every single day over the last couple of weeks about all things scrapes, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm talking about none other than Mr. David Riley. David, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me on, buddy. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, man. And, and don't feel bad for, you know, bouncing ideas off of me. I, I love talking about this stuff with anyone. And when it comes to scrapes and then like summertime velvet bucks, I know for a lot of people, those don't go hand in hand. But uh, I think here in this episode, you're going to find out that they they truly do for myself. Oh, absolutely. I think that they go hand in hand completely. And we've uncovered a bunch of things. Well, I have in the past couple weeks that you've known about that you've helped me with quite a bit. But even before that, I mean, I've, I see scrape activity 12 months out of the year, you know, especially these ones close to bedding when you get in the right areas and you have a semi-consistent food source. It's just a great place to be. But man, some of the information that we've unfolded, I specifically from you have unfolded in the last couple of weeks has just been absolutely amazing. So I'm really excited to have you on here and talk about this. I think that this is going to be a great episode. It's very time relevant even though maybe not everybody thinks so, but I think they're going to see that. And if uh, if they take some of these tactics that you have and go out and actually utilize them and test them, they've still got time to get in the game very quickly on some of these scrapes. So so let's dive right into this thing, man. Yeah. So, you know, you, you hit on a great point that we can hit on right away is that 
you know, that there's still time. And I think a lot of what you're going to hear today is a lot of what I'm doing with these scrapes is this has been, this is like a long game to me. You know, whitetail hunting isn't like, I, as much as we all want like results tomorrow, it's, it's a long game. This is years of, you know, from failures and success. You know, I, I've seen both sides of it and they, somewhere in the middle, they seem to always come together. But when you hear us talk about scrapes today for the guy that may be thinking, well, I don't have any of that stuff planned out or I didn't scout any of these spots there is still time and if you you know you can start with the map and start really studying a map of where you think one might be but you know a lot of these scrapes I look back at and I'm not just wandering out there in the summertime finding these you know and so that's the tough part a lot of what I'm I'll talk about these are found in the off season you know what I mean and, and I know that's not a real say popular time to maybe even build a scrape but you know 98% of like my trail camera work and my scrape work and all you know prepping the trees for say a camera just even trail camera prep is always done in the off season for me so a lot of these scrapes man it's it's hard to believe but I, i'm finding and building these february and march and april a lot of times i completely agree with you and i've only been a big like true mock scrape guy for this is my second season you know i since i was a kid i've like kicked up the dirt and peed in them and stuff like that but i've only really got into designing these things around you know, cover and bedding and food sources and direction of travel and uh, killable locations, you know, based on wind direction and everything else. The last couple of years, it started with Troy Pottinger really opening up my mind in some podcasts and then just venturing out, trying some things on my own. I've had some failures. I've had some successes, learned from some other people. You are a, a person that I'm learning from a ton about this topic. And so I completely agree with you, though. I think that even for myself, I'm seeing the most successful scrapes that I have right now in, let's say, even July and coming into August, that the most successful ones, hands down, are the ones that I've already prepared well ahead of time. And a lot of those were prepared in March or April. But I don't think that it's too late now to go out and prepare those. And reason that I say that is it's it's like a fitness regimen. Like Everybody talks about doing it, then I'll start tomorrow or I'll start next Monday. Well, just start today. And it's the same thing with scrapes. Just start today and get out there and start putting this work in. And like I feel like it's a, it's a long-term investment. You might not see it right away. You could. You very well could. But man, I feel like the long-term investment, and I'm starting to see this year two in some of these spots where last year these scrapes weren't utilized nearly as much as they are this fall or this summer already. Just because they're already there, they're established, the deer have been walking by them, they understand where they're at. You know, they don't have to locate them. And then the the herd of deer that's been using them, it's becoming like this consistent thing where there's does and fawns and young bucks and mature bucks all using them. And there's so much scent getting pooled there. And it's just, to be honest with you, it almost feels like it's changing their direction of travel in the woods. Now, it's not far, but a lot of these, you know, some of them are right on the trails, the convergence trails. But some of them, I'm, I truly believe I'm changing direction of travel up to 50 or 100 yards just to suit the kill location based on access and everything else. So so the first thing I want to get into with you today, David, is I want to just talk about from a mapping standpoint, if you're looking on your maps on your phone, what kind of things are you looking for to just tell you that you need to go put boots on the ground in an area that could be conducive for creating one of these big mock scrapes? That's a great question and a great way to start off here, Jake. And for all the listeners, I'm, I'm going to be 100% talking about my experiences here in Michigan because that, that is kind of, that's my bread and butter. And a lot of what I hunt in Michigan is pretty, pretty heavy farm ground, but we're like farm ground can meet little woodlots, but more than anything, it's going to meet 
swamp country. So a lot of this farm ground may be right on the, the you know, you could have a cornfield meet a cattail marsh kind of thing. So it's it's very, it's a good mixture of stuff. But when I, when I start looking at a map, you know, I'm really toggling between like historical dates on there. And I started doing this, you know, over a decade ago with, with Google Earth, like Pro. And I, I remember using that toggle at the top right corner to be able to switch the dates because I really wanted to look for something that didn't have leaf cover on there. Because when I, when I take away the leaf cover, I can usually find the areas that are going to be wet. So those hard transition lines from the swamp edge to usually like a hardwoods edge, okay? that That's my number one key. And from a map, I can usually all, also tell this, but not always, not always. You know, the map's always a great starting point, but it, it's not the, always the finishing. A lot of times the map will get me started in an area, but then I need to finish with my boots being in the area. But so I'm looking for those hard transition transition edges on swamps to hardwoods. And if I can get multiple ones, like say I have one of my favorite ones, like is like the shape of an L. Okay. Can you imagine you have a swamp that runs north and south, then it meets a swamp that runs east and west, and you almost have it the, the shape of an L right there. But it also does this. It's technically an inside corner. And this is deep into the woods. This is not, you know, on a field edge or by any food source. Like you're talking in the nearest food source, probably six, seven hundred yards away. But this is multiple transition edges coming together. Okay, if I can find that on a map. But here's the key for me when I start building these scrapes, Jake. If I can start from a map, when I find that transition edge between swamp and hardwoods, if you really study your maps hard and you know what you're looking for, you can find that break in the swamp. And when I say break, I want like either the swamp comes out a little farther on that transition edge or the swamp goes in just a little bit from that transition edge. There's a break in that hard line between vegetation and cover right there. And when I find those breaks, this is where you got to get your boots on the ground here. You got to go out there. And when I find those breaks, those are most of the time where the bucks are entering and exiting their bedding areas those hard breaks in the, in the swamp for swamp meets the hardwoods and right outside those breaks and in, in the the breaks of the cover line and vegetation line is this is where I'll find a junction of trails it's probably the number one waypoint I use whether it's onyx or Spartan forge it's my number one waypoint I use because I, this I'm attracted to these the most a junction I have multiple things coming together a break in the train a break between the the bedding area and the hardwoods and then I have multiple trails coming together whether one trail comes out and it wise off either I have one trail come out and splits into three or I may have two single trails but they both like when I find these breaks Jake it won't be like just necessarily one hard trail coming out of them there could be a trail on each side but then they're gonna meet right outside there and when I find that you know, that is that is an absolute killer spot to start with thinking about building a mock scrape. And here's the thing. Here's the thing with all my scrapes, especially if I'm building one. I would hunt these spots even without a mock scrape there because I still think they're that good. They're that good of a spot for me to hunt. But me building a mock scrape there may just make that spot a little bit better. And a lot of times, a lot of times there may already be a scrape there. But if there isn't a scrape, this is my opinion, if there isn't a scrape on those locations, it's because there isn't a tree or a branch to handle one in that area. Because I've, I've read enough of this, this, this sign here in Michigan that one should be there. And when one's not there, 
I get excited because I know if I build one, it's going to even be more powerful because, hey, they they need one in this area. Like for some reason, there just isn't one. A lot of times, like I said, it's either the tree or the branch isn't there to hold a good scrape. And when I can build one in a spot that like you get into a spot and you're like, oh my gosh, this spot just needs one. That mock scrape will usually produce better for you than the uh, one that has multiple scrapes already in the area. Kind of. I, I know that's kind of long winded, but that's kind of where I start. I know we we hit on the map thing, but that's that's what I'm really looking for on the map is I want those hard edges of known bedding areas on their entry and exit routes. You know, because you and I talked about this before. I want I want these bucks, whether they're coming into the, the coming in in the morning, I want that to be their last stop before before they go and hit their security cover and lay on their belly all day. But in the evenings, these scrapes, I want it to be their very first stop once they decide to leave their security cover. Their very first stop, not even not even to the food source, not even to a secluded you know soft mass food source. I want that scrape to be the very first thing they stop at. And a lot of times. A lot of times they can see it from the security cover too. They don't always have to smell it. Sometimes they can see it. Yeah, there's a ton of good points there. I think that the the biggest thing I took away is the convergence aspect of what you're looking for. So you're looking for those hard edge convergences. You're looking for those trail convergences. And I see the exact same thing in hill country where like if I have, you know, I always talk about hubs. Well, the reason I talk about hubs down in these bottoms of these hills because you have this multiple trail convergence. But man, you know what makes a hub really good? When you have a bunch of clear cuts in there that create hard edge transition lines that add to those trail convergences. So now you have like a bunch of hard edges that meet. You have a bunch of security cover that's in eyesight of these scrapes. I see the lot of the same thing a lot of times where these deer will come down and they'll just make that scrape there. Like you'll find multiple scrapes in these systems, but there definitely are some of these systems, and I hear a lot of listeners will get a hold of me. They're like, hey, I went into this hub. It's got clear cuts. It's got everything it needs, and there's not a scrape in there. And the first question I always ask is, what type of trees are in there, and do they have low limbs? And a lot of times, the answer is no. And it's like, okay, well, I guarantee you if there was a beech tree in there, that would have a big scrape underneath it if it had like that chest-high branch or multiple chest-high branches. So you need to figure out a way to create that setup. And that's kind of what you were talking about there. And I do agree, like when you find a system that doesn't have a mock or doesn't have a scrape and then you put a mock in there, it seems like they take it over overnight. And I've seen this even beyond hubs. I've seen it just on trail convergences. This year, uh, I get into a spot and there's there's some low hanging branches, but there's not a scrape and it's coming out of two different clear cuts off a point. I've sent you pictures of this spot and these deer have to travel roughly depending on their bedding area. They're traveling, you know, a couple hundred yards apart, but they're traveling down a ridge to a food source and up at the top of that ridge there's a bunch of big trail convergences. And so I walked in there and all I had to work with was a maple. There was just a maple chest high. It was actually the perfect branch. And it had like multiple branches on it that could be licking branches. And so I work up the dirt. I, uh, I always take, I broke a trekking pole a while back. And like, so I have a full size trekking pole that I actually hike with, but then I have a half size one in my pack and I use that to scrape up the dirt. So I scrape up the dirt with that trekking pole, uh, spray it down with buck fever. I use the forehead gland up top, and then I use the pre-post-rut scrape mix down in the bottom. And within 12 hours, I just had an absolute giant eight point hitting that, that scrape. And man, since then, since I put that out on that convergence trail, the same thing as you, this is a spot I would have hunted regardless. I actually hunted here at the end of last year 
chasing that eight point around. He was, I believe, a seven then. He was just a wonky buck. But, but uh, you know, I, I put that scrape there, and I think I've had, at this point in the last month, over 15 different bucks hit that scrape, and at least 10 of those were daylight. I'm talking eight, nine, 10 in the morning, four in the afternoon, a couple noon, where I think they were, you know, switching sides of the ridge. So, so the point being is everything David's talking about here, there's a way to relate that back to whatever your terrain is going to be. Whether you're in farm country, whether you're in marsh country, mountains, hill country, there's going to be a way that you can take what he's going to be talking about in this episode and then mesh that into your own strategy. And I really do think that you'll have, you'll have great results. So I just want to go through boots on the ground a little bit more and some things that you're looking for. So, you know, you mentioned those, those gaps or voids of vegetation on the edge of the swamps, and that makes a lot of sense to me. The thing I'm still trying to figure out is, you know, so say that are these bucks generally bedding out in like cover in the swamp or in the marsh? Yeah. So in, in the, the swamp country that I hunt, Jake, it's a, it's very thick and a lot of times it's going to hold water. So these bucks are out there bedding on high points out there, but you know, I really like swamps that are big bedding areas that I know like, Hey, there, there's probably multiple bucks that are using this. And that, that's part of why I think some, sometimes these scrapes are so, they're so deadly is because I, I know that I, I have more than one buck in that bedding area. So then there becomes competition at that scrape and competition inside the bedding area. But I like these bedding areas to be so big at times where I can run scrapes Let's say we have an east-west bedding area, like it, it's a long swamp and it's, say it's, you know, the shape of a rectangle, just for the listener's sake, and it runs east and west where it's like, I have success with running scrapes on the north side of the swamp and on the south side of the swamp because it's, it's, there's competition there. Now, if I think there was, if there was only one buck that called that place home, I don't think the scrape would be as good because I don't think that the competition would be there. And that's one thing about Michigan, you know, we may not have the biggest bucks in the world, but there, there's a lot of deer. So it, it, it creates a lot of competition out there. So yeah, that's, in these swamps, you'll find there's islands can be in the swamps too. And I'll, I'll hunt those. I'm not always just on the, the edges of these swamps. I really like getting there on the islands because you want to talk about another place. I, I'll do this too. And this is just because I've experimented with it over the years. I'll be able to scrape on these islands because a lot of times these islands don't have what it takes to hold a scrape. You know, years and years ago here in Michigan, we had this, it's called Emerald Ash Borer and it came through and it wiped out a lot of our ash trees here in Michigan. So a lot of the trees are dead on these swamps and especially on the islands. And you, you go build a scrape on one of these islands. I mean, I got pictures of some of the stuff I built and it's surrounded by water 360 degrees. But that scrape is the only dry piece of ground in that area. And that, you know, it, it may be, you know, 60 foot by 60 foot island, just tiny island where, you know, they may not be bedding on that. I, I don't see them bed on those exact islands a lot. I see them bed on the outskirts of those islands. Now, something like that early season, almost, almost, almost can't hunt that, you know, because you know, they're going to be there. But the later we get in October, the later they come to bed. If I can slip into one of those in the morning and I know they're going to come back to bed later in the day, you know, it's October 27th per se. I can get one to check that scrape before he gets off just on the edge of that, that island to go bed for the day. But that's a funny thing about, you know, some of the country I hunt, say to hill country is, is what little bit of topography I have in Michigan, they'll use to their advantage, but they're always bedding lower in these swamps than anywhere else. You know, the swamps naturally are just a few feet lower in elevation than a lot of the hardwoods is. But a lot of times, you know, we talk about, start. we talked about how we start with a map. 
But man, a lot of these spots, you just got to get out there and find them. You know what I mean? Because even, even if the best map readers, sometimes it's these swamps change. The water levels change all the time. So you got to be out there paying attention to them. And I talk about this a lot, Jake, is this Jan- this last January and February, we had a perfect example of this. It was so dry for all the swamps. You could read like a like a, a blank map because of no water. I mean, I get out there and take advantage of that because now here we are in the summertime, they're full of water. And if you went out there right now, you'd think, man, that's hard to read. Well, it, it's harder to read, but there's also ways to read that even with the water in there. But that's a lot of how my bucks are betting in, in these swamps, man. And there, uh, there, there's multiple beds in these swamps. So, you know, you get on, you get on my, my mapping app and be like, man, there's, you got six beds pinked in that swamp. It's like, yeah, there, there's six beds truly in there, you know, and you know, four out of those six may be used on any given day by, you know, bucks. But I, I think that helps. So, like I said, because there's competition in the, inside those swamps. Yeah. So the reason I asked you that is, you know, I'm, I'm going to correlate your swamp bedding to like a clear cut bedding here. Like say that I have thick covers, clear cut bedding, but the clear cut is let's say 10 acres. And let's say you have a 10 acre swamp that's probably on the, on the small end. But so you have 360 degrees around that swamp. Are you setting a scrape in any void in that 360 degree circle? Or what kind of things are you looking for that's going to dictate the way those deer are going to get up and move throughout the afternoon or come back from to tell you, hey, I need to prioritize you know, this section over here because they're going to be going to whatever that is. Like what type of things are you trying to stack in your favor with these travel routes to and from with these voids to create the perfect spot for these scrapes? Yeah. So what I found here in Michigan, and and let's use your exact example. So let's say I have a a swamp like that or a bedding area and I can hunt 360 degrees around it and anything's in play, right? And I, this is something I'll do. And the thing about Michigan and these swamps is, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit here. You know, 10 years ago, when I first kind of learned about going out scouting and scouting these swamps like this, I used to go out there and I, this is what I used to do. I used to turn the tracker on my phone and I'd be, I got to the point where I was like so glued about walking like an X amount of miles, you know. But then I also, I learned like over time, I was like, dude, I, I might've walked eight miles today, but I didn't find a damn thing thing you know and then there'd be times i'd go scouting as the years progress where it's like hey i only walked three miles today but one of those miles was such a good quality mile so like i almost got to the point where like i wanted my this my scouting to be you know almost like my hunting i want it to be you know quality over quantity kind of thing and when i started to learn to slow down in these swamps start in in really try to read every break in the swamp on that edge cover and i'd find those breaks and i'd be like well i didn't see that one on the map but perfect like maybe maybe hell it could be a, a down tree that caused that break from one year to the other and jake i would walk these these trail systems in and out of these swamps and this is hard walking like it's it's not enjoyable but here's the thing with these swamps there's not just thousands of trails inside there like these trails a lot of these trails I see have been carved out probably for decades by the deer. I mean, even even when there's water in there, if you look, if you know what you're looking for, you can still see the trails underneath the water because they're so hard carved out. So I'm I'm gonna I like I'm gonna walk that thing like a spider web. I'm gonna walk every part of it. I wanna know every single thing about it because I, I know I probably I'm I probably wanna build a scrape on each side of this and I'm gonna find out what ones are probably gonna be the best. Now, the thing that I've learned, though, and this takes years, this takes years of running scrapes, and I've kind of already heard you talk about it, is the food factor with scrapes. 
And if I have a scrape, say, on X year, and it was really good, and then the following year, I'm all excited, I'm all jacked up for it, and the following year, it's not that good. Immediately after doing this for so many years now, I've learned that, okay, that scrape was too much food-based. I need to be better. This, this, it, it, there's a better spot in here. And somewhere along those, those lines of learning that, is it food-based or is it truly like the spot for the scrape? That is, that's the hard part to learn. And some, like I said, like that, that takes years to learn. Sometimes you can hit and swing on, on the very first year, there's no doubt. But so when you have that whole, that whole bedding area, you know, my guess is there's going to be, I'm going to kind of set it up, you know, depending on size, you know, that would be, you know, the, the 10 acres may be a little bit small. So I would probably try to get away with something naturally on the north side, then something on the south side, because then all of a sudden give me any kind of quartering winds, northwest, southwest, or the east, southeast, then it can play in factor like that. And it can play in factor at all times of the season because are we talking just, you know, food to bed patterning pattern in the beginning? Or are we talking like, do we have a buck that's going to be working downwind of not only the bedding area, but he can be working downwind of that scrape also. So that that that's where I'm going to, you know, really put my focus on naturally. If we had that the perfect picture of the scenario you talked about, I would be looking hard on at the north side of that swamp and on the south side of the swamp. But I'm not over going to, I'm not going to overlook the east and west if they, if that's, if the deer are telling me I need to be, be building one or if I find one there, hey, that's what I'm going to take. But yeah, you can always like you really start backtracking all the trails and you may find a wild apple tree, which is great. But th- that, that that's a like a, it's a little bit of a Hail Mary because it's not going to be guaranteed every year. The thing about I find about with these scrapes outside these bedding areas, you'll know it's good because like we talked about earlier, this is it's going to get used 12 months out of the year and it's going to get used for years and years to the point where like I have to replace the branches on it because all these the good ones are dead and I need to put new ones on it. So that that's that's kind of how I'd approach it. But man, it's in a lot of times too, a lot of guys like I think they've they want to go out and dissect an area in a day where it's like if I go out there in a day and I don't get all my information, I'll go right back. And if it takes me four or five days to dissect one area, I need I like that is I know there's a good spot in there. Like I've seen enough stuff where if I know there's a good spot in it, that's what I'm willing to do. Because then the flip side of that, you gotta find the good spot. Then the to me the hardest part, Jake, is to find when that good spot is good. What windows during the fall is that spot gonna turn on for me? I completely agree. And so when I asked you that question, I was fishing for the food answer, right? Like I was fishing for that answer. But the way that you answered it was a thousand times better than I expected. And it's something I've been hitting on a ton. And the more I talk to high level hunters, the more this is becoming apparent where in my opinion, the guys that are just the top level are leaving no stone unturned. You know, they're not having like, it's, it's okay to generalize things, but they're not basing everything they're doing off of generalizations. Because when I was fishing for that food answer, the generalization I was probably expecting is, well, I know there's white oaks or cornfield on this side. And so I'm assuming travel is going that direction. And so I'm going to start there. And you know what? You might hit it, like you said, right on the head and it's a great spot, but you're also, you could be missing a ton of good information there by just not doing your due diligence and putting in the work you need to be doing scouting. And that's something that, man, personally, I would say a couple of years ago, I went, I used to scout every inch of everything, right? Like grid search it. And then I got, I got cocky and I would scout based on generalizations off of, Hey, I'm going to scout leeward and I'm going to scout 
hey, there's a white oak flat over there. Okay, I'm going to focus here a little bit more and all these things. I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily, but you can get in a pinch when that doesn't work out the way you want it to. Like your food-based scrapes you're talking about. You know, on the year that that apple tree is hot, well, you know what? You probably have a window to kill on that scrape, but on the other three years after that, that apple tree isn't hot, you're probably not going to kill on that scrape. And so I think that just doing your due diligence, making sure that you're just leaving no stone unturned, you're open to any possibility. Like you go out in the woods and you're just like, you know what? I'm going to walk 360 degrees around this swamp and I'm going to figure out where, what the deer are actually telling me, not what I think they should be doing, because those are two totally different things. And, and then what you have, and I think what you can build on is you mentioned a couple good things there. The, the first thing is you mentioned finding the scrape, not the food-based scrape. And I think that that can definitely be dialed in. And I think that I need to work on dialing that in. I do run into some problems where I will see deer shift up to like a mile. In, in some of the bigger timber where we just don't have any available food and then there's like red oaks a mile away that are going crazy. So that makes it a little bit difficult for me. But the food-based thing, I, I guess this is a question for you too, with the food-based scrapes that you find, like, yes, you have the scrape. Do you still have food-based scrapes that you're focused on when those food sources are hot that year? Or are you just, at this point, you've dialed it in so much where you just have the scrape that's good every year? Yeah. So, you know, 98% of my, my trail cameras are on scrapes right now, Jake. And every one of these, I don't care what the crop rotation is. I do. It does not matter. Like I'm still, I'm still paying attention. Okay. This field's corn. This one's alfalfa or this one didn't get planted. I'm still paying attention to that. I'm still paying attention. Like, okay, like right now in Michigan, what I'm seeing, reds are loaded, whites aren't. Like that's what I'm seeing in Michigan. But honestly, I, I do not want this to come off cocky or wrong. But these scrapes, it, to me, they do not matter what the food source is, Jake, because I, at any given month out of the year, these bucks that I'm hunting are using them. They they just are. But it like that is years. That's year. Like, and sometimes I, I you know, I don't want to say trip into one, you know, or find a new one. But these are like years of dialed, you know, sometimes it's even like sometimes it even takes hunting a spot and going, OK, that's that's what they're doing here. And I here's a here's a great example example. I would say over 90% of my spots that I've decided to make a scrape that I have ran an SD card trail camera for one to two years on it before I ever decide to make a scrape there because it I use that historical information to tell me how good that spot is. Like that's what I I got. I can think of right now, right here in Michigan. I know of seven right now. I have cameras on where it's like I've scouted it. I think it's good. Those cameras are gonna soak all summer and all fall. And if they they turn out like if I can out of the seven, if three of them turn out good, you can pretty much bet I'll be building a scrape on those exact spots right where that camera's facing right now. Because like that, I'll get that historical information. I'm I'm going to get when the three to four day windows fire up throughout the, the fall. I'm just going to make them a little bit even better. That's that's what I'm going to do. But yeah, I do not want it to come across wrong about the food thing, though. I just these these scrapes are more cover, probably more cover dependent than anything, more probably even more than terrain. But the cover goes with the train kind of in Michigan. I don't have that that hard stuff, you know, but like we talked about earlier, even you, you, you talked about it with your hubs. I, I think, Jake, that you and I, we could go to a lot of different trains and start hunting things. You know what we're, I'm always attracted to, no matter what kind of train I get, where multiple things come together. 
two, three edges, downfalls, uh, terrain, whatever case may be, like that, that's the stuff. And that is where I like all these scrapes. They may not make sense on the map, but if I took you all, if you put our boots on and we went out and visited all of them, they'd make a lot of sense when you see them in person. And you could take away, yeah, I'm sure there's there's food involved because that, that's a thing here in Michigan. Here in Southern Michigan, you're never a mile away from some kind of food source. So I don't like, they. Th- there's some shifting that happens, but man, it's they're more cover-based than food-based for sure. So the food stuff, and it doesn't really bother me too much. I don't, there's nothing real, nothing I have is right tight to food, honestly, nothing. It's a big reality check for me because a lot of what I have right now is very food-based. Now, I, I do have a couple that have all these factors. And I think the thing in the hills that I'm trying to figure out the balance with is I, th- I think the best spots year after year are the ones that hold deer in there the entire year. So you have to have the right cover. You have to have the multiple food sources, you know, you, like ideally some ag nearby, uh, some good whites, some good reds, some good chestnut oaks, uh, you know, beach good brows down in the bottoms. Like I think, I think the bigger thing here that I need to focus on is finding the areas that are conducive for that all year round activity. And when I find that, then I think the ability to find that scrape that is the scrape goes up dramatically because I don't have to deal with that shift. So it's still on me. It's on me because I don't have spots. I don't, I don't have a bunch of spots that are holding deer all year. Some of these spots are very food dependent. And so like I get in these pinches where I'm like, well, if I don't have the food in there, I wasted a lot of time this year. And I think that it's just like you said, it's years and years and years of dialing in these areas. And, you know, the other side of this whole thing, too, is like at some point you have to be willing to let go. Like, I don't care if you've killed a deer in there in the past because the whites were on fire. If the whites aren't on fire the next two or three years, like you probably shouldn't be in there. But that's a hard it's it's hard to let go of success and especially in deer hunting because it doesn't come that often. You Like it's it's a very rare thing. So like when you get it, you cling to that success and you're like, well, I love this spot. But I just feel like if, you, if I can find the areas in the hills that are conducive for that all year round activity that hold deer all the time, that all of a sudden the this chance of me finding the scrape or creating the scrape like you're doing goes up dramatically. So I don't think our situations are identical, but I think that I can learn a lot from your situation and check myself and become a better deer hunter to try to set that same you know thing in motion here that you're doing. It's just, I need to go out and make that happen now. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Once again, I love being a podcast host because my head is just sitting here. The wheels are spinning. You know what I mean? Like it's turning into mush as we speak. But but so that's uh that's a really good point, man. I think that I can take a ton away from that. So let's jump into how you're actually designing these scrapes a little bit. I'd, I'd really like to get your thought process. Let's just start out with you get in an area, like what is telling you what you need for that scrape, whether you need to bring in licking branches or if it has licking branches that are going to be what you, you know, what you actually want to build off of. Like, let's just start with like physically you get to that spot, you're looking around. What are you looking for factors wise to just a, the scrape needs to be under this tree for sure. And this is how I'm going to start the process of designing that. And what other things are going on in your head? You know, I want to go even as far as 
Um, I designed a scrape in Kentucky this year, a mock scrape where the deer are coming off a bedding point down into a hub and they're, they're coming right at me, like, you know, frontal shot. And I designed a scrape under a vine that is like 15 feet off the trail, just so I can get them to turn enough to get a broadside shot. So like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to almost anticipate the travel route slash shot process with some of these spots as well. So I'm just curious what's going through your head. Yeah. Okay. Be- but before we jump into that, I'm just, I just out of curiosity, I'm, I'm curious that setup in Kentucky, when you hang, when you put a camera on it, are you able to get the trail plus the scrape? Or yeah. Are you only getting the scrape? So I can get both. I can get the, okay. on the uh, yeah, in the right frame, I get the scrape and there's actually the trail wise right there. So it comes off the hill. Like they're coming from the, let me make sure I get this right. They're coming from the West heading East. So I'm facing west towards the ridge they're betting on and coming off and they're traveling east towards me and when they get to the creek they can either go north out the drainage to some ag or they can come straight underneath my stand and go to a bunch of oak flats up on the adjacent hillside so right where that wise basically what i said is okay i'm going to get these deer that are turning left all the time and heading north but i want to make sure that i'm not frontal at eight yards on the deer that wants to go to those oaks so can I just turn him enough to get him just sideways enough to get a shot and, you know, maybe just adjust their travel 10 feet? Like that's the goal there with that situation. That's perfect, right? Because that, that's always my only worry about if I'm building a scrape a little bit off my junction. And it, when I, and like we talked about earlier, when I talk about junction, I'm going to talk about multiple trails coming together because that, that's that's really my focus right outside these, these bedding areas because it's almost like a, a social network. It's like the bar. It's like every, where everyone's going to kind of meet up and, you know, they're going to mingle a bit, like right outside those bedding areas. So that's always my worries. Like if, if I build it too far off the scrape, I want this camera to face both of them. But so let's just say I've scouted the, the, the whole, let's go, uh, I've scouted the whole swamp and I'm on the north side of the east and west swamp and I find my break and I find my junction right outside that break and this is where I want to build my scrape. Now, I know a lot of this may not be popular to a lot of people, but when I'm getting ready to build my scrape, I'm also really eyeing up where I'm going to put a camera because I want that information, whether it's a cell cam or an SD card camera. If I'm going to run one, I want to be like, I I have a bit of OCD with hunting equipment so that I want to be so dialed. I want great pictures. I want great information. And so when I'm building this scrape, if my preferred way is if I could build a scrape right in that junction, I want to put this thing right in their faces. So any deer that decides to come down this trail, because here's the thing, it's not just, you know, a high percentage of them will be bucks that I'm targeting, but there's going to be does and there's going to be fawns that use these also. And I want them to use these scrapes too. So I want to build this scrape in their face. I would. So let's just paint a picture for the listeners. We're on the, the north edge of an east and west swamp. And they're exiting, they're coming from the south, headed north out of there, and I'm going to build a scrape right there. I, If I can, I would like to have my trail camera facing south, straight south, because I want to see the buck come out of that bedding area and go into it. So whether if he's coming out, I want to get his picture before he even touches my scrape. I want to watch him walk up into that scrape. And then let's say in the opposite, say if it's in the morning and he's headed back into bedding, I want to watch him work the scrape. I want to watch exactly how he walks into that bedding. Now, 
all that's been scouted out. So like getting those pictures is just confirming what's going on. So let's just walk through a scenario that there isn't a scrape there. Because sometimes there is. Like sometimes I'm I'm using, I'm letting the deer, you know, tell me what they want. And if that's that's where they are to have a scrape, I'll just rebuild that and we can visit that here in a minute. But let's say there is not a scrape there. I will do, let's say we're on private. So whatever means necessary to build a scrape, public or private. These only there's only one thing that really makes a difference. I've Jake, over the last two weeks we've been talking about scrapes. I've built I've built about any kind of scrape you can because to me the location is the most important. Now I've gotten, you know, I've kind of fine-tuned how I like to build scrapes, but even for a newbie, if you nail your location right, you could probably somewhat half-ass build a scrape and it's still gonna be pretty good for you. But I, whatever means necessary. So <laughs> I've, I've never really talked about this on a podcast. So some people are going to maybe laugh or some some guy may be out there going, dude, I do the exact same thing. Now, if I if I can't build a traditional scrape, you know, we're like, hey, there's a licking branch here. I'm just going to open up the dirt. Guess what? I probably can't because otherwise that would be there. From what I found, that should already be there. So if there isn't, here's one option, okay? I have bought a $6 flagpole holder off of Amazon before, okay? For like a front porch flag, the fly the, the, the American flag off your front porch. Six bucks, guys. I can usually buy one or two. And I want the ones that are fully adjustable. I'm talking like I can... Uh, I can adjust the, all the angles to this thing. So I can put that on a tree and then I can attach a licking branch right into that flagpole holder, tighten down. Guys, that works perfect, okay? But here's the thing with the licking branch. This is what I do a lot differently than what I don't see people do. I will go talk to farmers anywhere. Any, where anyone lives, you can do this. It's not just me. I will go ask for permission and they they will be more than happy with you. All I'll ask them for is like, hey, I see on the edge of your cornfield here, you have a bunch of low-hanging oak branches. There's a bunch of oak trees on there. Do you care if I go cut a couple of those? And they'll be like, wait, you just want some branches? Well, yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cut these branches off these field edges and I'm going to backpack these into these areas that need a licking branch. And I'm not just cutting any random ones. If you if you walk down a farmer's field, most most over every overhanging branch on that field has been used for a licking branch by a deer. Most of the times at night, that's what I see a lot in Michigan. But yeah, I, I'll go out there. I I'll like if I'm going out for a day of of trail camera work the day before. I'll go load up my truck bed with them because I don't know how many I'll need. But it, so I, in, but remember, remember that what I just talked about going out there and cutting them because I use those for all of my mock scrapes I set up, all of them. So one way would be the flagpole holder. That's probably my last resort, honestly. That's that's the last resort because then I got to attach the, the flagpole holder to the tree and this and that, but it works because if I had to, this is what I really like to do. This is what we call a Franken scrape. Why I called it that, I have, I have no freaking clue why. But for years... You know, I see people do rope scrapes and I see that work and I see people do vine scrapes and oh man, that works too. And I've done some vine scrapes just because of like here, here in Michigan, we have those vines everywhere. I can cut those down and make them all to myself. So I'm constantly carrying a lot of paracord and a lot of black zip ties with me in my, in my pack. Cause I never know what I'm like. I never know what I'm going to be building. A lot of times, like we talked about earlier, this is in March. I, I love building them in March. So a Franken scrape. Okay. I am taking, you know, this vine, it's probably usually, it's got to be six, seven foot in length. Usually it all is situational though. You got to read your situation. And if I can take that vine and attach it to a branch way up ahead, that's overhanging this junction. Sometimes I can paracord the vine right to the actual branch. 
Sometimes the branch is so high, Jake, I have to take my saw and tie the paracord to it, throw it over the branch, and get two ends of the paracord, and then have this vine dangling. Now, I have some thoughts on that. We're going to hit on that, too. So now I got this vine dangling, but this is what I, this is the Frankenscrape. This is what I do. <laughs> I have this vine, and I think vines need to be a little bit lower than what people think. I think they need to be between your chest in your waistline, almost like belly button, mid-stomach. I think they got to, for some reason, when you go a, a, a vertical scrape, like a vertical scra scrape vine or licking branches, I feel like they want them a little bit lower. That's just what I found. So I'm going to cut that about belly button height. But then here I am, I've got two or three actual licking branches, sometimes from multiple different farms around the area, and I will zip tie those licking branches to the vine. And I'll let the vine hang down just a little, you know, three or four inches lower than the branches. When I first started doing this, this was my worry, is that there, you know, you ever seen bucks, how they, they spread their back legs and they use a lot of force and they start just, they really want to work into it? Well, these hang pretty freely. There's not much resistance to them. So I was worried about that. But let me tell you what, I they still do the same thing. And the one thing about a vertical scrape is you watch them work it. I've got videos. I've got thousands and thousands of pictures I've seen from it. When you get that vertical scrape hanging there like that, it like rubs all over their head, all over their face. And it's like they just sit there and just, they, they can't get as, as aggressive with it, but they're checking it just as much as any other licking branch. Okay. That is the Frankenscrape. It's, I, dude, <laughs> it's, I've only been running them for about two to three years now and I've had great, great success. But so, but also what I'll do on a Frankenscrape, say I just built this in an area. Let's say it's, it's 2023 and I did that. You know what I'm going to do next next March, Jake? I'm going to take all those branches off that Frankenscrape and maybe leave one on there and replace it with all new licking branches from another farm. Like I'm going to replace it. Same as if I, I don't know how long that vine is going to last me because I don't, you know, like once you cut that vine, you know, you cut a fresh vine and that thing's just dripping. It will drip in that scrape. Almost looks like a scrape dripper, but that vine's got some kind of liquid in it and it's just dripping down into that scrape. So let's say I did all that. I attached the vine. I attached the licking branches. I have a full-fledged Frankenscrape. And what I do, and I know it's not it's not enjoyable, but I carry a rake in with me, a steel rake. And I'm not talking about a rake that's don't like don't rake up the dog shit in the yard with this rake. I'm talking about keep this rake solely for building mock scrapes. No, I don't want any other smells on it, just just for mock scrapes. And I will carry a rake in there. And from what I see compared to what a lot of people do, I feel like I open my scrapes up maybe twice as big as what most people do. I want them really, really big. Okay. Couple reasons. One, it's a visual attraction. Okay. Like that deer, when he comes down that trail, he's going to see it. Like he is going to see that open dirt. Two, it has that fresh dirt smell. Okay. It smells fresh. And this is a brand new scrape. It smells fresh. Same as like guys that trap, you know, that there's that fresh dirt smell. And three, this is why I like them open big. Before, when they're, when my buck that I'm targeting, when, or any deer, we'll just, we'll say any deer, when he puts, he or she puts their two front hoofs in it before they even made it to that licking branch. I got them. Like they fell for the trap. Their tracks are in it. One, I could go check their tracks now. Two, like that puts a visual to every other deer, visual, and they can smell that. 
that a deer has been in there. The more, more deer I can get in that scrape, the more powerful that scrape's going to be. And as soon as I get one deer to stand in it, most of the time they're taking it over. Like the deer will naturally do their job in there. So I build the Franken scrape. I've got the ground open really, really big, real big. And then I, I use the buck fever forehead gland. I, I naturally don't put much at all, anything in the dirt, in the, especially in the summertime. I just put that forehead gland on it. And there'll be times, let's say I, let's say I made, I made a mistake on myself and I forgot it. I'll still go through that same thing because I think I can visually build it so good to them. And the fact that it's in their face, they can't, they can't help but not hit that when they come out of that bedding area or if they're, or if they're, you know, coming back into the bedding area. And this isn't, this is a thing I, I see a lot too, Jake. And you talked about it earlier with the scrape you built. I build the right scrape in the summertime. Let's say I built it in March and I'm going in in July and I'm putting a camera on it and I'm reopening it. And this is a, let's say it's a scrape that's been there a minute. You open that dirt up a lot of times. I just had a buddy tell me this. You open that dirt up and you can smell deer in that scrape. Like rework that dirt. I like to work it like a, think of it like a, of a, a plus sign or a hashtag sign. Like work it both ways. Really work that dirt up. And that buck I'm after shows up hours after I left. That tells me that I think I, I probably made some noise. I'm so close to him, so close to him in there that once it got quiet, and everything was safe, that curiosity got the best of him, and he's coming out there. He knows that something was just in there, and he comes out there and checks that scrape. Same night I built it. That I see that a lot, you know. But So that's the Franken scrape. I, I really enjoy those. But if um, a lot of times, too, like... Like I told you before, like I'm, I'm whatever means necessary to build a scrape in your area. So if I don't do the Franken scrape, if I don't use a flagpole holder, let's say I'm just doing a traditional scrape and there's somewhat of a, let's say there's a branch there, but it's a little bit too high. What I like to do is I'll also, here I am again, I truck these branches in, licking branches with me. I always add branches to other branches. I, you know, let's say I'm at a pin oak. And I, I'll add like a, a red oak branch to it or, you know, whatever, a maple. I, I like to cross reference branches or sometimes if like their deer are telling me that they love that branch, maybe I'll, I'll take my, you know, take one step and go up a little higher in that tree, cut a branch down from over there up higher in the tree and bring it down and zip tie it right to that branch. And then it's, then it has more of that, that natural look that works too. It's whatever the means necessary. Cause you get in those spots and when you find those spots when you're like, dude, a scrape would be absolutely dynamite here. A lot of times they're hard to build because they're like we talked about earlier. There's nothing there to give them a scrape. So you got to figure out a way to build one. You just got to be creative with it. You know, I, I've, I, I've tried just about everything when it comes to scrapes. And I, that's why I think location, location, location is most important because that's why that, you know, I will build the scrape, then try, then later on figure out, okay, what tree I want to hunt afterwards because the location is most important for those spots. You know, they may be tough to hunt, but those are the spots you got to be, you know, and when you're building these scrapes like that, I really like to open up the ends of these branches, you know, whether you break them off and let them dangle down, you break them off and have the ends open. That's something else I've done. I've taken pocket knives and shaved off the bark at the end of the licking branches. So when I spray those, it, in my, maybe I'm wrong, but in my opinion, it's holding more scent. And along with doing that, 
if you watch what kind of branch you use, I like the branches that like if you break them or like if you bend them, they don't break. They almost twist and they almost like splinter out. I like those ones a lot. Like, you know, you watch what just watch what the deer use in your area. Let those deer tell you what kind of licking branches they they want, they prefer and cut some of those down and carry those in there. And I don't think there's anything like on public land, you know, you can attach a, a, a branch to another branch. You're not cutting a branch. Take go go off a private property somewhere. You know, like I said, that farmer's that farmer's gonna let you take branches off his farm field. He's going to. It's not fun trucking all that stuff in there. It's not fun carrying the rake in there. Not at all. But guess what? When I leave that, like that that spot's set up usually so good. And like I said, I'll do that stuff in March. And then when I go back in, in July and June, when I'm hanging that camera on it usually, I'll reopen it back up. I'll see if it needs new licking branches, but yeah, I got long-winded there. I'm sorry, buddy, but yeah, I I love that stuff, man. So that that's how I would approach a scenario where where I'm really looking to uh, build one, and it's very very important to me to prep that location for a camera too. I don't want a like, oh dang, look at like the camera didn't turn out that good or the pictures. No, I want 100% all the information I can get from that. Man, I've been sitting here taking notes as we're doing this, and like I feel like having a little ad read or something, some sort of read that I can plug in at the beginning of some of these good segments and be like, all right, get your notebooks ready. And then we go into your, <laughs> because man, there is so much to take away from what you just said there. Like, man, my process that I have, I think that it's like, well, I thought that it was like this really intricate process and I really had it fine tuned and I was figuring it out and I'm doing 5% of what you're doing. So it just blows my mind. I've got a, a ton of questions there. I'm going to start pretty basic here. Um, but before I get into that, there is, you've sent me some pictures of these scrapes over the last few days. And I will say that my average scrape on buildings probably, I try, I probably open them up like four feet and I'm doing the best I can to work the dirt up with a stick or with like that trekking pole or stuff. But after seeing your scrapes, I'm going to figure out a way to get a little rake in the woods, even if it's like a six inch rake. I really don't care, but man, the way you're working up the dirt and the thought process and the theory behind getting the tracks in the dirt and like being able to visually see that track too, makes so much sense to me that I need to start doing that. And I just... Your scrapes are so appealing just looking at them. Like, and it's through a trail camera, but I'm looking at the scrape and I'm like, wow. I mean, that thing just looks unbelievable to me. And the Franken scrape, we'll actually try to get a picture posted up on the Instagram post for the podcast because I think it's going to blow people's minds. It blew my mind, but it makes so much sense. You have that diversity in the different trees. And then you have, you're not just, you know, when you're spraying a scent, I'm assuming with like a buck fever, like I use, I'm, I'm introducing like one buck, right. Or like one profile where what you're doing with all those multiple licking branches is you might be introducing like four or five different bucks profiles. So if you've got a big dominant buck in the area, he comes in and he's not thinking like, Oh, I have a new buck in the area. He's thinking, man, a whole bachelor group moved into here and now I'm ticked off. Now I'm mad. Now I got to find these guys and I got to work this scrape because this is my spot. Like these are my does. This is my food. This is my bed. Stay out of here. And so I just feel like the more bucks that you're introducing, they're probably going crazy when they find these things. I'm sure you have videos of them finding these things and they're just like, they're out of control because they don't know what's happening. You know? Um, so a question is when you're harvesting these licking branches or doing your vines or even setting these up in general with splitting the ends of the licking branches. Are you wearing gloves? Do you care about your own scent when you're doing that? 
Yeah, I I always wear gloves. I have like um I used to wear rubber gloves quite a bit, and then I just hated like I always was using them over and over again. Where I mean, it sounds crazy, but this is just what I've what I've done for years. Um, I have like this rubberized glove. They're almost like a waterproof glove, so they're completely rubber all around them. And I have I probably have a dozen pairs of them, and I'll cycle through those. Like once I use them, and I get done with a day, like I'll bring them home and hand wash them in some baking soda and let them air dry. But I keep them all in a tub. So even that's the thing is a lot of guys are going to hear this. Like you're going to say, well, you're putting them in the back of a truck and I do. But like my back of the truck, I have a tunnel cover. But when I'm doing these, the taking the branches, I open up the tunnel cover, but I, I put all the branches down on a tarp. Okay. And then my hand, my physical hands are never touching the actual branches itself. Okay. And then what happens is like I'm strapping these onto my backpack a lot of times or depends on I've done this also. I've attached them to the rake and I'll put the rake on my shoulder and carry it in. And I'm like carrying, you know, like carrying in an animal with attached to the rake, but just licking branches. But yeah, 100%. I've, I always, always wear gloves when I'm taking these licking branches down. That's a huge thing. And I've heard Troy talk about that as well. Like you and Troy seem to be the most detailed with doing that. I haven't been and I've seen less results than you guys are seeing. So in my head, I'm telling myself like, okay, wear gloves. I tried really hard this year. I was running, uh, I had a box of nitro gloves I stuffed in a Ziploc bag and threw it in my pack. And man, I'd be working some of these scrapes and get them going and then they would like break on me and I wouldn't know. And then I'm touching everything with my bare hands and I didn't know it. And I was like, this is ridiculous. But the rubber gloves that you can hand wash at home and then, you know, dry and then store in a bag makes a ton of sense to me. So I think moving forward, I'm going to get a set of those. Um, So in these swamps, you're setting up these scrapes and like a lot of the areas, like you said, it's lower ground than the timber and it probably floods quite often. I'm assuming like I've seen some of your pictures. And the one thing I just want to ask you here, I already know the answer, but I think it's really good for the listeners is how do you feel about you flooding your scrapes and you know honestly before talking to you i had spots that i wouldn't run scrapes in like bottoms that i knew flooded because i just assumed that it would wash all the scent away and they would never use it and so like what's your thought process on these swamps or like an area that's going to flood still having a scrape if it's in the right spot this is such an interesting topic because this is all learned through like trail camera data for me, like over the years. And there's two, there's two sides of this. Okay. One side, I, I, I don't care one bit if it floods and one side I do. Let's hit on the side why I do. And that's going to be a fresh build scrape, like one that's not really established. If I build one, just say in March of this year, and I, I have this exact scenario right now, I just built it in March this year. In March, it was dry. I was dry all the way till June and there's deer in there quite a bit. But now it's been flooded, you know, July and August here. And it's flooded pretty good right now. I've seen a big drop off in that, but it, it it's not really well established though. I've got other ones, the one, the particular one that you're talking about. And I've, I've showed pictures to some people because that deer, that deer's dead now. Um, That one has been established for about six years. And this is why the licking branches are so important because even when they're water, the water will be up to these bucks knees at time. If it's real shallow water, I have pictures to prove it. I have, if it's real shallow water, the bucks will still paw at the scrape and splash the water around. They, they, they'll do that. But even if the water gets till too deep, they are still working the licking branch. It gets worked. There isn't a week out of the calendar year, water or no water, they will still work that licking branch. That licking branch is in their face. 
that that way the swamp flows in that area, the way the terrain flows, when they come through there, their natural instinct is to work that licking branch. They have to, no matter what kind of animal, doe, fawn, buck, it does not matter. They will work that licking branch. And so that spot right there, it can flood all at once. Now being, you know, being a mobile hunter, it's not the funnest to go set up and, you know, knee deep water trying to set up. But like when you know that they're, the bucks will use that, no matter the case, I take that back. I take that back, Jake. There is one time when that swamp starts to freeze and it's not completely froze over. That thin ice where like when that deer steps on it and their hoofs go through, they don't like that. But as soon I do it, as soon as that swamp fully freezes and now like now the swamp water, you, you know, the, the swamps will be full of water and it freezes. It makes that licking branch like extremely low for them. They'll still work that licking branch. It's it's the licking branch is so important. I, I mean, to me, it's you know, priority one of, of the total scrape itself. And it makes all the sense in the world. A lot of the natural scrapes that I've found over the years and ran a camera on in the summer months, a lot of those were mainly licking branch activity. And it wasn't until I started really like turning up the dirt and kicking up the dirt myself that I started seeing that early summer and even springtime, like, you know, pawing activity. So it seems like the natural thing is that scent checking of the licking branch more than anything else. And then you can just help out that situation by doing that. So, so yeah. the next, you know what else? I I tell you another thing here, Jake. Just before it gets off my mind, and it in th- this is the hard. I I see this with the water, no water, and I see this with a lot of majority of my scrapes, ninety nine percent of my scrapes in the off season when it's February and March. You know what I expect in my scrapes? I expect hair, and I'm not saying that they're laying in there, which that's a whole nother subject. But the when you got a scrape in a good spot and it's being used year round. I expect to find shedding hair when the deer are coming out of winter time in those. And if I do have water in my swamps, you know what I'll have? That hair will be sitting on top of that water. And they'll be just sitting there floating. So that tells me too, even with their, when there's water in those scrapes, say even in the off season, I, I still know they're spending time in there. That makes a lot of sense. Shifting from early season into mid to late October into the rut. What are you seeing like in season change with the usage of these scrapes? Are you seeing them use them more? You seeing them use them less? Are they like bedding nearby to observe them as other deer are checking them? What have you seen throughout the years? Yeah. So when it when it comes to in season, um, I'm seeing I'm seeing consistent use right out of summer. And I know for a lot of listeners, when you hear summertime scrapes, I know it doesn't sound like a super popular thing, especially when they're not close to food. You know, like when they're when you think about a you know deep security cover scrape in the summertime, I think a lot of guys think, well, that's not gonna get used because they're they're not it's not close to food. Well I beg to differ on that. If they're located correctly and built correctly, they will. But I want to hit on a time frame, Jake, that this has taken me years to learn, years to learn this. And I and I think it's arguably one of the best times, at least where I come from. I'm not saying this, this isn't maybe across the board, but this is my experience. I see some of my best scrape activity between like October 14th through 9th. And I'm going to explain why I believe that is. I have areas that the very first doe is going to start going into heat around those times. I know it sounds early, but I'm, I'm, I got all kinds of video to prove it. That those does will work that bedding area where I expect these bucks that I'm after to be. And she going to pull that some of those bucks out of there. I mean, as soon as she pulls one out of there, for some reason, a lot of these does, they'll walk right to that scrape. And they'll bring that buck right in tow. And it just ignites 
everything in those bedding areas that work those scrapes. I mean, just lights them up, you know. So we've we've all heard of scrape scrape week that that last week of October, and that's a phenomenal time. But I think that first doe going into heat, like the week before that, is what fires up a lot of my scrapes. I I truly like I've I've been watching it hard. Like if if you came and hunted with me, Jake, and I I I would tell you I said if you want to kill one on a scrape, you need to be here between the 14th and 19th of October. That's when I want you to be here hunting on a scrape. It will get it will still be good that last week of October too. But I do see a time that it dies off for me. Usually November 1st through man, I would say the 5th or 6th. It will, it will, it won't completely die down to zero, but the activity will die down. But let me tell you something, when it does get checked, it's usually a big one, but like the, it seems like the smaller ones kind of die off a little bit of the scrape action. I think they're probably running around, but the big ones are still working their circuit. I, I think a lot of times what it correlates to that big one's done with that first doe. Cause I, I, I've starting to see that a lot in Michigan. It's a little bit early, that early or not early, but mid October, he does his thing with her. Then it, then that scrape activity dies down. But once in a while, between the first and the sixth, I expect probably the buck come after he may check it one time during those days. But if he does, that tells me he's up on his feet at that time. But then somewhere around, I would say the ninth, the 10th, it really starts ramping up again. And honestly, I, I see good scrape activity all the way through the end of November. And believe it or not, like I have a lot of pictures of deer in early December working scrapes with snow. Like I, I got all the proof. I mean, it's, it, there's snow on the ground. It's December 2nd. He's got his back legs sprawled apart, like full aggression. The hair's puffed up and it's, it's December 2nd. This dude's working that Franken scrape, like tons of pictures of it, you know? So if I was to pick a, a time where I said that it really died down though, it, it's that first through the six. I, that's what I, I see that a lot here. And that's only speaking of what I see here in Michigan though. I mean, that's, it's very similar to down here in Southern Ohio. I think that I see good scrape activity until November 5th and then it dies down for a week. So we're a little bit delayed there, but it's the exact same process. And I tell everybody some of the best scrape activity I have all year round is actually early December. It just is. And I have, it's not, you know, saying the hip thing or anything else. Like I have data from multiple years to prove that some of the biggest bucks that I get on camera in Ohio consistently hitting scrapes early December, even into January. I see pretty good January activity. Um, you know, if I was to tell you a time to come down here, which I, th- I think this is just so interesting for me, it'd be the first week of season on scrapes. Like that's how I'm killing most of my deers are first week of season. I think the reason is the scrapes that we're putting out are just so close to security cover. You know, they're so close to that cover in those bedding areas that they're just, they're right there. I think like, yes, scrape week is great for scrapes. Don't get me wrong, late October. But a lot of what I see in scrape week is like the scrape lines open up. Like they're running these drainages or these systems or these field edges or these, you know, travel routes and making scrape lines. But the main hub scrapes, in my opinion, are used much more throughout the rest of the year. I think that you just get more scraping activity overall, but I don't think it means that the scrape is getting used more necessarily. Um, you know, a, a good example of that is you and I have discussed this a lot and we're kind of getting on a, off on a tangent here, but it's a really good tangent where the last few days of July and the first few days of August, I mean, I, it, it might be, it is definitely in the top like three time frames of a five day window per year that I have the most scraping on my community scrapes. It's like all these deer come into these areas, they check these spots and it ignites daylight 
scraping activity and it's almost like the deer are trying to figure out who's the king like what's the who's dominant and what's the hierarchy here and how can i fit into this or do i need to leave and so like they all come in they're checking these scrapes that all my scrapes lit up well you know what is it today it's august 11th so you know let's say a week ago it like two weeks ago to a week ago that seven day period they were on fire and i mean i sent you pictures and the first thing you did is you're like yeah i just looked at the date and it's it's that window so do you mind talking about that just a little bit yeah yeah a couple things before we get into that i i I got a curiosity question there um when you talked about that your scrapes are really good opening week for you guys in ohio what's always interesting to me is see we're we're such a we're we're a hard october one start and i know with ohio like that fluctuates i think maybe this year you guys are really close to october or like as the calendar cycles like do you ever see that change where it's like okay we open September, say, 22nd versus September 30th. Does that change or is it still hold true? Like kind of the calendar date doesn't matter. It's still that first week of season. So that's a that's a great question. And being a very food-based hunter with these oak flats and having these scrapes that are set up in close correlation to bedding, but only in correlation to a hot food source, creates like this, I get this shifting pattern, right? But I see these deer shift into the systems that have the active food sources that year. So like the active white oaks, they'll shift into those food sources between the first and the second week of September, which is why I never go check my SD cams until like about two weeks before season and even a couple days before season, because if I check them too early, like late August, they're not even in those systems yet. But so they shift into these systems with these white oak flats, and I already have the hub set up, the hub scrape set up. They'll go in and from the time they shift in there, so let's say let's say about September 10th-ish, on average, I would say probably September 10th, all the way until roughly the second week of October, I get the exact same scraping activity. It's like almost, a, it's what is that, a four-week window or even a five-week window where multiple times a week, close to security cover, these deer are coming out and checking them. And then as those food sources start to dry up, which normally happens with the whites, you know, the first couple weeks of October, they start to fade out. Well, all of a sudden, because I'm a food guy, once again, I'm chasing these food sources, the like say the red oaks heat up or a different white oak flat that dropped a little later heats up. A lot of times what will happen is A, they'll stay in those systems or B, they'll switch to a different system and then that activity disappears. And then I find myself chasing them into late October. So they're not, you know, they're not shifting into the area that they're in late October very often, in my opinion. Normally they shift into an area for five weeks-ish, and then they'll make another shift as they get closer to that late October time frame. And I think that has to do more with what do, with what doe groups they think are going to get hot. And I picked up on this throughout the years of being down here, and now I have just core areas where if I'm still chasing a buck late October, or like if I have a buddy come down, I'm like, hey, go check out the system because the last four years... It didn't matter what food was in there or anything else. October 26th to November 4th, it was on fire. And I've had two buddies come down here and kill the first day they were here doing that. So I think that there's something yeah. to it for sure. Well, I, I, and I think you nailed it there, Jake. It, you know, that, that latter part of what you just said about like historical data on spots. You know, a lot of us talk about historical data and, and deer, and, and that's great too. I mean, I, I follow that along also, but I think there's historical data on spots itself. And a lot of times that some, to, in my opinion, that is some of the hardest parts to learn is like, you know, a spot's good and there may be you know, two, three to four day windows in the entire fall that that spot fires up. 
And once you can fi- figure that out, a lot of times, like you said, end of October t- between, you know, this date and this date, this is where you got to be, a good one's coming through there. Like when you start figuring that stuff out on, you know, historical information about certain spots, man, that, that can be so deadly. But yeah, I, I, I was just curious because I, you know, like I didn't know how hard of a difference you've seen if it, you know, you know, whether it's seven, you know, that opening day for Ohio can fluctuate between dates kind of on the calendar. But either way, it's, you know, most of the time it's still opening week right so that's the important part but yeah and i'm sure that you know there's going to be guys that listen to this that are that have some ag to hunt down here like a more consistent food source and they're going to be like well i don't see that and i completely understand that i do like the food shift thing is a whole different topic you know like that that style is definitely gonna you're gonna see different types of patterns as opposed to what you would see if you had like uh, if you have a standing cornfield all fall, well, you might have a totally different pattern than the guy that's chasing around oak flats. And the goal is to find the place that has both, right? And then you then you can find the scrape, like exactly what you've talked about this whole episode. So that's what's that's what's going through my head up here. But um, but so the last thing I really want to dive into, man, is just some moon phase talk. And this is something that. I'm going to be completely honest with immediately. I am probably the last person that should talk about moon phase because I am not versed in it whatsoever. I I didn't pay attention to it for a long time. And it was like one of those stubborn young guy things where I was like, "Ah, I don't need that. But you know what? It's very interesting. And if there's something to take away from it and something to learn, I want to be a little bit better of a hunter than I was last year. So if it can, if the, if moon phase can help me a little bit, I need to be paying attention. And so I just want to get your thoughts on it, what you've seen over the years running these scrapes with different timeframes of activity and everything else, according to the moon phase. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's like combine the, the, that summer part and the moon phase kind of all together. And I'll give you a, a little bit of background. Um, a lot of the scrape, activity that I talk about. You know, I, I, Troy and I have been good friends in talking about scrapes for 10 to 12 years. So like that, that's, Troy is honestly the reason why I kind of got turned on to the scrape thing. Or like you said earlier, is like, we, yeah, we know about scrapes, but like, holy cow, like when, when someone starts showing you information like that, it's like, okay. And as much as people are, can listen to this podcast today, here's the thing, even what I did with Troy, like Troy, Troy taught me a lot about scrapes. But I had to apply him to my situation because his situation is different than mine and mine's different than his. So that that's where I've had to tweak things. But when it comes to the summertime scrapes in the moon thing, this is how it kind of all came about was, like I said earlier, I have I have OCD pretty bad when it comes to like my hunting stuff. And, and I can remember, you know, five, six years ago, probably maybe even longer, six, eight years ago, I'd run all my summer trail cameras on food sources. And then I always hated the thought that like I, I could get all kinds of pictures, but I always knew sometime around Velvet Shed that I needed to go move those. And I hated, I hated having to do that, not having everything done. So probably, you know, like that window six, eight years ago, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to go put all my cameras exactly where I want them. And I'm going to start putting them on these scrapes that I'm building instead of just waiting to move them there towards the fall. And Jake, when I started moving these these cameras to where I potentially wanted them to sit all fall, like I don't, there's no moving cameras for me anymore. Like where they go in the summertime is where they're going to be all year long. I started instantly realizing that like, it was like, wow, these, these bucks use these this much in the summertime. Like it, it was almost unbelievable, you know, because like here in Michigan, like we can't bait, we can't run minerals or anything. So like, I always thought I had to get an inventory on like a bean field. Like that was just the way you did things. So when I started seeing the instant success 
of the pitchers and the way I could get inventory in the summertime from scrapes like that that's what really turned it on and along that time for the last decade not that I base everything I do off of it but I'm always like okay what if it's one percent better along that time I was always buying like the moon guide or guys would post it online and I just screenshot it so I didn't have to buy it whatever the case may be but then I was just just out of curiosity I'm like well I'm just gonna watch for every time I get a picture I'm gonna watch the weather I'm gonna watch the moon it seemed like in the summertime it was the easiest for me to watch because once I get once I get into hunt season, man, it's just just hunting. It's grinding. You know what I mean? Like we're just we're just putting the work in and what you know, weather's doing what it does or moon does what it does, we're still hunting. And I instantly started the first thing I ever noticed about in the summertime though was there was a hard like July was good and there'd be times in July where I'm like, eh, I don't know, bucks aren't that good this year. Like I don't I don't know what we're gonna have. But like we talked about, then all of a sudden like the August shift came. I don't want to even know if I should call it a shift because I've, I've heard a couple different scenarios. And the one scenario I, I really like the best, a guy I used to call it, the, the I talked to, he called it the August field trip, where these bucks would start visiting areas that they will use in the fall. Because in a lot of it would make sense because like when you're watching scrapes, watching videos of scrapes and pictures of scrapes, you have a buck, you know, you got that camera that's been there all summer, six weeks, and all of a sudden a buck just walks right up to it and just works it. And it's like, he knew that thing was there. Where's he been? You know what I mean? Where it's like, he knew exactly where he was going. So when you talked about earlier about that, that late July, early August, in my opinion, whether you've got a trail camera out there or you're glassing, my opinion, that two-week window is the best time to see the biggest whitetail in your area. Whether you're on, you know, driving down the highway, backcountry roads, or running trail cameras, that time frame, I don't know what it is. As long as we have good, consistent summer weather, good, cons- like I don't want hard changes. I want typical summer nights, still warm, cools off a little bit, not a hard change in weather. I think those time periods are the arguably the best time to see the biggest bucks in your area. I really do. And then you start correlating, like you start learning that over the years at that, okay, come August, I expect the biggest, like I, 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 I think about this. I look at every buck I have on my wall. I've got every buck on my wall I got pictures of on being on scrapes. Never had one of them in July. I've had all of them in August. That's like, that's an interesting thing to think back. It's like, well, how's that work? Because like they all started shifting and moving in August. Sometimes I think that shift happens well before the velvet shed. And I do think there's a shift there too, but like I see a harder shift in August. I truly do. But when it comes to the moon thing, how many times have like, say you and your family been out, Jake, in the summertime and it's like, you know, you're like, oh, there's, there's a group of does. So let's say they're does too, but you're like, there's a group of does and you look down at the, the clock on the radio and you're like, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. That's weird. You know, I was started to watch that in the summertime, the, those red moon days. And they always seem to, I, like, I don't know the whole science the overhood or overhead or underfoot you know i i know there's a lot to like you know that seven days in the evening leading up to the full moon then seven days in the mornings after the full moon there's a lot of theory in that but nowadays with cell cameras non-scrapes I think there is a correlation between the the moon and the activity on these scrapes if the weather is consistent, if we have average weather. And on top of everything, the pressure, as long as we're not dealing with pressure, because the reason I think that a summertime is such a good sample of it, because they're, they don't have that tons of human pressure yet. You know, like, because come the fall, you could be paying attention to all that stuff. Like, I think the, the weather trumps the moon, but I think pressure trumps the weather. But in the summertime, you kind of get like a blank slate. You get a true example of it. And I've just, I've just 
I just set my watch, you know, and it can be plus or minus a day, you know, like you may have the red moon for five days and it could still linger on the next day a little bit. And that, some of that red moon stuff, you have to adjust to where you're located in the country times, you know, but I just think it's a good, it's just a good sample to watch. And, you know, if it's, if it's 1% makes me better than I was last year, maybe learning a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm open to, you know, trying just watching it. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing, man. Was yesterday was a red moon, right? When you sent me that screenshot. Correct. So yesterday yep. I had a brand new buck I haven't seen yet on a cell cam on top of a ridge hit one of these scrapes that's right outside of a bedding area. He actually makes, I believe, number 15 on that scrape. But he hit that scrape at 9.53 in the morning. And I mean, that's pretty That's pretty late in the morning, man. And I, I remember getting that picture and I was like, wow, that's, that's really odd. That's really late. And this is where like just evolving as a deer hunter and being willing to learn is going to make a big difference, you know, five, 10, 15 years from now, where normally I'd be like, huh, that's, that's odd. Yeah. I don't know what's going on there, but you sent me that picture, that screenshot. And I was like, oh, well, it was a red moon and you know, maybe there's something to that. And so like, all I can do is I, I have a very hard time just like taking somebody's data or taking somebody's thoughts and just like fully believing it. But what I can do is I can start just logging every time I see that you know, just document every mature buck encounter, whether it's camera, visual, you know, anything, even deer out in the field. And then just look back at all these different variables over time and just, you know, just see what that equates to. And like you said, at the end of the day, might only get 1% better, but you know what? That's 1% better than last year. And 10 years from now, that's 10%. And I'm, that's great. You know, you're just upping your odds and becoming a better hunter. So, so I think that there's definitely something to that. Hey, David, we've been on this thing for uh, just under an hour and a half. I think it is an awesome episode. One of my favorite episodes. There is... I can't even tell you how much I learned and I know that the listeners are going to learn a ton. So I really can't thank you enough for coming on here. I can't wait to have you on again. Where can uh, people follow along with your season and find out more about you? Man, I'm I uh, I'm not too active on on Facebook. I kind of just save that for my family stuff. But even on Instagram, man, and it, my Instagram was a, a true flavor of kind of how my life is. It's a mix between kind of you know bull hunting the biggest bucks I can find here in Michigan and in my family. Honestly, that's just that's that's my two passions, you know. But you can find me over on Instagram. It's a D Riley R I L E Y J R, and that's that's my username. And find me over there. And in the uh, I co-host over on the Fall Podcast. I, I dabble on with that here and there. But other than that man if if anyone has any questions i i don't i answer everyone dude it's i i truly do because i think back a decade ago and i was learning you know what i mean and and for anyone that is learning just remember when you listen to jake or myself or anyone out there troy troy knows all kinds of things about scrapes you could take it but you have to apply it to your situation the same as jake and i are talking today he's asking me questions i'm asking him questions because our scenarios are different but if i can take a little bit of what he does or if he can take a little bit of what i do and apply it to his own situation and learn from it it man here we are again you can be one percent better and just remember it's a long game guys it's we live in a world that everyone wants success today this is a long game this is years when you hear guys talk it's years of experience in failures it's never a failure if you learn from it though in my opinion so yeah along the way that's where you can find me d riley jr over on instagram that's where you get the most out of me i couldn't have said it better myself thank you once again for coming on the show man thanks again bud All right, everybody, that is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you could, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time.